Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with us today, we have James Clark. Hello. Good morning, Sam. How are you? Very good, very good. We've been having insane connection issues over the last, <laughs> God, God knows, 15 minutes. But hopefully it will be okay. Um, can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, no problem. Uh, I'm the senior manager for PR for Toyota and Lexus uh, in the UK. So I look after our uh, whole PR department. Uh, in terms of the way we deal with the media, our launch events, test drives, press releases, the, the whole lot. So, uh, bluntly, I've got a really cool job. <laughs> how, I mean, how did you get into this? Have you been in the sort of car industry for a while or sort of PR um, on the side? Yeah, I, the latter, actually. So I was a journalist uh, in my first career, but not a car journalist. I was a news journalist um, uh, for national newspapers, um, a defence correspondent in the main, so covering wars, not cars. Um, oh, wow. uh, and then uh, went into PR uh, and worked in PR in various big companies, not automotive, but I've always been a massive petrol head um, oh, okay. uh, and uh, car fan, old car owner, rubbish racer, all that kind of thing. Uh, and Toyota came to me just over five years ago, uh, out of the blue, uh, and said they would like me to come and do the same thing for them. And, and it's not a question you say no to. So really lucky. That's nice. Awesome to be able to sort of combine the two in one point. Yeah. Did, you, did you think you were going to, at any point, you might want to work in the car industry? 
do you know, so it's really interesting. Lots of friends of mine who are cleverer than me, which is all of them, had <laughs> said for years, you should go and do this. You would love it. It's vocational for you. You know, things that would seem like hard work in any other business, you'd be doing hard work about cars, which makes you happy. Yeah. And I didn't listen to any of them. <laughs> and five years after actually doing it, I realized that they've been right for the last 15 years. So the, the moral here is listen to your cleverer friends. Yeah, yeah. When they say you might be good at this, give it, give it a go. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna ask because I'm sure there's loads of budding people that want to work in in the sort of automotive sector out there. And uh, sure. I was gonna say like how you know sort of what was your avenue into it? But I guess you got headhunted into it from a separate industry. So do you yeah. have any sort of thoughts for people coming up? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think what I'd say is that the uh, boring as this is, but it's true, the skills that you need to uh, to be in PR are PR skills. So the fact I happen to work in the motor industry, uh, the fact that I'm a car fan and I know and love cars is really helpful, but it's not the qualification for the job. There's yeah. a lot of people out there who know and love cars uh, and aren't Le Mans racing drivers. Me, for example, <laughs> total lack of talent. Um, but... I think if you can work hard at the core skills and make yourself known uh, to people in the industry, which is the single biggest thing, really. Um, so it's a bit like journalism. You often, when you talk to some of the, the top automotive journalists, they'll tell you the bit that matters most is the writing, it's the journalism, because you can learn to drive faster, you can learn to review cars. But you have to be able to write and you have to have a passion for that. And I think it's the same in PR. You've, you know, you've got to have those core skills. I guess my simplest advice would be look for events where companies are present. So um, test days, uh, festivals, Festival of the Unexceptional, Car Fest, those kind of things, Goodwood. Um, and take the time to find out who the people are and just go and see them. Collar them, stop for five minutes, ask them if they've got time for a coffee. Uh, it really, really works. And there's a number of people in our industry uh, at various automotive companies whose uh, foot in the door came from just doing that. It, you've got to do the hard work, of course, but there is no substitute for getting in people's faces and saying, this is me and this is what I want to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm slowly learning this. I've heard this many and many times from everybody. <laughs> it's like, go meet people and then <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll work itself out down the line. But yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, and, the, you know, one of the big things of the automotive industry is, is trust, whether you're dealing with PRs or journalists. Um, and I think really that only comes from FaceTime and time spent together. Mm. Um, so it's, it's worth doing. Um, we're all busy, right? And it's hard sometimes to think you're going to give up a weekend and drive 300 miles to an event just to buttonhole some PRs but it's, uh, or journalists. But it's definitely worth doing. And, okay, my... PR, you are dealing with public relations, I guess, gen mm -hmm. general yeah. public. Um, do, you, do you deal with journalists and stuff like that again? No, so that would be... Pressing. Yeah, so no, that's, that's my bit. So I deal with the media. Um, oh. So that might be the automotive media. Um, so you think of your Evos and your auto cars and so on. It might be lifestyle media, so people writing for GQ or Harper's. I deal with national newspapers uh, as well. So sometimes that's on product stuff. So the guys who review cars for the Telegraph or the Daily mm. Mail. But sometimes I'll get a call from the Guardian news desk about emissions or environmental policy, and I, I deal with those things too. 
and of course, increasingly, uh, we deal with guys like you, Sam. So your media, right? You have an audience, you have a product. Um, uh, so whether that be podcasts or YouTube channels, that's an increasingly big part of, uh, of my workload and a good mm. part as well because it's good fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. I, I've always slightly wondered because you go to, you come across, you know, launches and whatever, and we're all, as car people, I, we're sort of, you know, about them, you know, the major mag- magazines and maybe some big YouTubers and stuff like that. Mm. But in terms of, let's say, cars that get lent out or company, people that you're dealing with, what percentage mm. is like automotive journalists? And let's say I'm going to put YouTubers in that group as well. Um, sure. Whether, whether people want to put them together or not. Um, and then versus like general media, you know, like newspapers and other lifestyle mm-hmm. type things. How does that split? It's a really good question, Sam. Um, uh, I wish I could give you a really simple answer that said it splits, <laughs> I don't know, 60, 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's about time. So what tends to happen is uh, when we launch a car, one of the key things for us is over the time we're launching that car and that's a period of months in in our world you know so people think a car launches two weeks it's not it's about six months Mm. for us we want to get everybody in that car that we can of course but there's a there's a strange thing here so if you imagine uh, take youtubers or national newspapers or lifestyle for a moment it's fabulous when they write about the product and say this is good hopefully they say this is good (laughs) yeah Uh, because they're getting to audiences that traditionally maybe we haven't got to but what's also true, of course, is the media are, are not our customer. They're the prism through which our communications mm. goes to the customers. So when the customers read in, I don't know, Tatler or the Daily Mail or whatever they're reading, um, uh, or they watch a YouTube video, and they think, oh, that's really interesting. I might be interested in that. The first thing they do is write name of car review yeah. into Google. And what they get there is Autocar and Watcar and Evo and Top Gear and those guys. So the, the professional review is still core to us. And, and so it should be because we can spend all day saying something's good. But, of course, we have a dog in that fight. We yeah. need that third-party professional, uh, we hope, advocacy if the product is good. Don't always get that. Um, so long-winded way of saying what we tend to do is get the automotive guys in the cars first – so that Google is populated with those, or the magazines, which still sell in yeah. big numbers, are populated with that. And then we very quickly roll that out through lifestyle, non-automotive media, uh, and uh, podcasts, and uh, internet channels uh, of, of various sorts. So we get everybody in eventually. Uh, the other thing is it's really expensive. So lifting the curtain slightly on the, the automotive world, it probably, for an average car, so I don't know, Toyota CHR, for example, yeah. by average, I mean not, not a kind of bespoke sports car or something, yeah. probably costs me about £2,000 a week to lend that to somebody. Ooh, In terms okay. of the prep of the car, the parts, yeah. the delivery, all the things that have to go on. Um, and I have to show, quite rightly, to the uh, people who run the business, some return on investment for that. So we have a, a bar. And the way we do it at Toyota Lexus is not just on numbers, but we have a bar that basically says, has the person got a reasonable audience? And that might be judged on size, but we're also really careful not to only judge it on that. So, for example, I will always lend a Toyota Hilux to the Shooting Gazette, which sells, I don't know, not very many copies. But the key point is everybody who buys one needs a Toyota Hilux and can probably afford one. So 
we we work on getting that audience just right uh, and we're also i'm quite proud actually at toyota we're particularly good at identifying people who are coming up so without naming names there's a number of people now working in automotive media at a very senior level who we identified when they were bloggers and mm. said this this person is doing really good stuff or vloggers in fact you know they're doing really good stuff they've got a really good take on things doesn't matter they haven't got a huge audience we will if you like invest in that yeah we will phone them up and we'll offer them a car and see what they do with it so there's no hard and fast rules um but it remains the case that the big automotive titles tend to get in things first <laughs> once you you boil away all the water that's yeah. what you're left with it makes it, it makes sense and i endlessly get questions and i think a lot of, sort <clears throat> of people that are on the internet that get the occasional car get question you know like how do you get how do you get a car from a manufacturer like how does that process work um yeah i i, I could say what I, I do which is send an email or call someone um i i'm less good at calling people and i know calling people is actually probably better yeah you need a bit of both yeah so if someone's like cold reaching out to you mm-hmm. how do you i know you've said you look at small people you look at big people yeah. Is there any sort of yeah thoughts for, or advice for someone reaching out for the first time? What yeah. they, how they might you know want to approach it? Sure, um, definitely. We have um, amongst guys who and girls who do what I do for a living at the various companies. We obviously talk to each other a lot. We're, we're yeah. quite uh, close. We compare notes, and we have um, we have a little private phrase between us, which is ideally in red. And that comes from uh, an email that I received about four years ago from somebody who just started a YouTube channel, uh, had almost no followers, and asked me for an LFA to be delivered to their house, ideally in red. (laughs) Um, uh, So we now use that phrase as a sort of catch-all for those sort of things. Uh, Why do I say that? I'm being flippant, but there's a a sort of sense behind it. I think the really important thing uh, is not just to send an email... uh, I can't speak for other people. I probably get 300 emails a day uh, and I will get through them. But, you know, time is time. Yeah. I think what's really good uh, is to find a way to get in touch directly. A phone call is always really helpful. Uh, have something prepared and think about what you're trying to say to the PR. So you want a car, right? That's why you're making the call. But actually, from the PR's point of view, everybody wants a car, right? your neighbor wants a car the guy you met in the pub wants a car what you need to be saying to the pr is here is what i'm proposing to do if you lend me a car and why i think it would be good for you now that might be that you say i have this audience that i don't think you talk to and the reason i don't think you talk to them is i've looked at what you do i've looked at your social i've looked at your press releases i don't think you're talking to this audience that i can put you in touch with Mm. or you might say we do things differently this is how we do our photography. Nobody else does this. And again, without mentioning names, there's, there's somebody now working for one of the very big automotive websites uh, who started off doing that, doing some really interesting, cool photography. And again, we, we sent them a Lexus RC back in the day. We were the first people to do so. And they just, you know, they did interesting things with it, something different. Yeah. I think most PRs will absolutely roll the dice and take a risk uh, on, on somebody. But you have to have a... You have to have a good pitch, ultimately. So simply saying, here's my audience, I'd like a car. Probably guys who do what I do for a living get 10 or 20 of those a day. Yeah. So you have to be different. You have to stand out. Um, 
which sounds awful, doesn't it? It's like pitching a film or something. But I just think you have to get people's attention by showing them you can provide something that isn't provided elsewhere. It doesn't have to be huge, just has to be new. Yeah, I, I've had it a few a few sort of variations on that. Sometimes it's yeah, okay, and okay, or mm, not not yet, or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think I. I'm trying, I'm getting better at doing what you're saying. Um, basically trying to come back with something interesting and uh, yeah. provide some value. I, I feel like I provide value. Um, yeah. Hopefully that, that's why you're here. Um, Absolutely. But, Wouldn't be here if I didn't think you did. Exactly. It's, but it is, a, it is a really interesting one. And, and different teams deal, seem to deal with it differently. I massively okay. prefer the open and honest reply of, yeah. you're not big enough or we don't actually have many cars. I think there is a bit of an assumption that there's a lot of cars. There's a lot of press cars mm-hmm. and certain manufacturers have more than others and whatnot. But yes. like, I think you saying you get 300 emails a day or, or you know, that sort of a number of requests probably puts it well, in not, a bit Not 300 better. requests a day, 300 emails in total, but okay, probably, yeah. probably four or five requests a day from um, people I don't know. And it's not just me, but the, the other... Yeah members of the team as well yeah and you only have a set number of cars and mm-hmm. a set budget i guess and you know you've got yeah. to fit into all that so that, that is and, I, and set time as well sam so if you think mm. uh, when a car leaves us to go out to uh, a member of the media uh, of whatever kind it would have been through a four-hour prep process and check process which the guys at the in our case the toyota press center will do now all of that is time and money and while they're doing that they're not doing another one yeah. So we we have to prioritise. I guess my one other really core bit of advice is one of the ways to absolutely get a PR's attention if you're after a car for the first time is not to ask for the fast stuff. <laughs> Honestly. Absolutely everybody. Hi, I'd like a GR Yaris. I'd like a Supra. I'd like an LFA. I'd like a Lexus LC. I'd like yeah. an RCF. Okay, yeah. I, I get that. I'm a petrol head. Completely get it. But... When you look at some of those cars, to some degree, they're the ones we probably need to take risks on least because they're, yeah, yeah. they're very well-known vehicles. If you come to, say it was Toyota, and you said to me, oh, you don't know me, but I think I could do a really good job for you. Uh, I'd really like to borrow a Camry hybrid. Suddenly you've got my attention because you're not asking for a joyride. Yeah. You're asking for something professional. You know, you've got a, a media outlet and you want to fill it. And that really is attention-grabbing. And I bet you the same is true of any of the other PR guys in the other automotive sectors. If you pick stuff, which, bear in mind, you know, the company wants to sell those things. So you pick stuff that is perhaps not so glamorous mm. and perhaps isn't getting requested, you know, G.R. Yaris that we're here to talk about a little later. Uh, I've lost track. I mean, I literally couldn't tell you the number of requests oh. for that we've had. It will be in the thousands. Um, I don't get a huge okay. number of requests from people saying, could I try a Camry? And that will really stand out at me if that comes in. Now, it may be that you try the Camry, you do really well, it's really interesting, and then you say, can I have a go in a GR Yaris? But suddenly I know you. Yeah. So it's so much easier. Yeah, definitely. And I know, like, how does insurance work? Do you insure okay. per week? Yeah. No, we... Um, so our vehicles are insured by Toyota, Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a blanket insurance. So if you think your insurance renewal 
is uh, a bit painful when it comes through the post. You want to try having 120 press and heritage cars, some of which are worth three quarters of a million quid, uh, driven by anybody. Um, in our case, we have a lower age limit and an upper age limit. And for some cars, that lower age limit goes up a little bit. Yeah. So you have to be 21, 20, um, LFA, for example, is 25, because yeah. we can't insure it otherwise. Um, uh, the upper age limit is 70, you'll be pleased to hear. So you've got a while. Nice. It's all good. I mean, I've got some time. Um, yeah. Um, but no, uh, so somebody taking one of our cars is insured to drive it on us. There's no issue with them. What we do do, of course, is people sign a piece of paper when they've got the car, which says a number of things. But fundamentally, it says we will respect it and look after it, which is the first thing we want. You know, accidents happen, mm. things happen. But we want people to do their best to look after stuff, try not to curb alloys, all that sort of thing. It also says that if you pick up any speeding tickets or, I don't know, you uh, les fines or whatever it may be during the yeah. time you've got the car, that's on you. We won't pay those for you. And that's not because we're being skinflint. It's because if we offer to pay people speeding tickets, you can imagine how they drive or park in, in the case of parking. Um, so people are responsible for that. Uh, we'll always deliver a car with a full tank of fuel or a full charge. Um, uh, so generally speaking, uh, unless you're going to drive it for a lot of hours a day or drive it really, really hard, uh, if you've got it for a week, probably only need to refuel it once. And we don't ask for people to top it up when it comes back. It's not a hire car. Um, uh, so hopefully the costs for the person driving the car are minimal, maybe a little bit of fuel and hopefully no speeding fines. Yeah. I had exactly one of these things. When I had the um, the Yaris GR, I got I got one of these fines that now exists in London that mm. they've decided to close a street, but they've not really told you they've closed the street. And oh, no. they put a small sign up and it's this street was shut for like two hours and you get a hundred pounds. And I was like, Oh gosh. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say this, but I lived in London for nearly 13 years, but we live where I am today, right out in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. Yeah. Uh, and I've got to say, I, I much prefer it out here for that reason. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm about half a mile from what is known as the Evo Triangle, oh, which right, is yeah. where Evo and Top Gear do most of their yeah. quick car testing on the road. Uh, and we don't get roads closed out here. We've only got about five anyway. <laughs> That's, how is that nowadays? I've, I've been there a while ago, and I know it's, it's quite a bit of a mecca for car people in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, does it get really busy now, or is it still okay? No, um, I, I think South Wales used to be very popular uh, back in the day, uh, less so now, I think. But out where we are is is still relatively unknown. I'm not going to tell you where it is uh, no, for the sake of your podcast audience, and I'm always really clear with it when I see friends from the automotive mags or actually uh, other manufacturers who've started to use the roads around us for, for launches. I'm always very, very clear I don't tell anybody I've got my Sunday fun to have. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. Like you go out and you're like, I knew this area here. Now no one needs to ever find out about it. And then someone does a video and they're like, Oh, yeah. that's there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it. Damn, damn the internet. <laughs> no, it's, um, it, it must be. So what, how did your sort of time get split? What sort of, what you took day to day? Is it a massive variety? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the bit that isn't always obvious to, uh, to guys on the media side of the fence is 
you know, I'm a, a senior manager in a big corporation. Mm. So large chunks of my day are spent in meetings about finance and God knows what else, you know, in the same way as they would be if I worked for a company that made plant pots or diggers. Yeah. Um, uh, just, you know, that's what keeps the cogs moving. Um, but yeah, in, in the simplest terms, we start a day with a big meeting of the whole team. That includes the social media team, content, uh, community managers, all the guys. Um, we exchange information, tell each other what's going on during that day, what's just gone on. And then usually the day is a series of meetings. Sometimes uh, it will be broken up with spending time with media. So I do quite a lot of, or try, to do a lot of lunches or suppers or breakfasts and just spend face time with people. Yeah particularly in the backwash of COVID. So important to reconnect with people in a proper one-to-one yeah. way. Um, and then, of course, there's the events. So they tend to come in chunks. So I'll give you an example. Three of my guys are currently in Barcelona uh, yep. with media doing the first drives of the new GR86. Um, I will be spending Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at our press center in West Sussex where we're launching the new Lexus NX plug-in hybrid. And then on Sunday night, uh, I get on a plane and I'm out in Barcelona. Uh, this is one of the few joys of, of, of the job after all the meetings is people who do what I do and various other roles in companies, uh, Toyota companies, need to drive these cars early. So yeah. um, I, I'm sorry to tell you I will be spending a day and a half driving a GR86 around the park motor circuit. <laughs> um, and it's actually work. <laughs> So it's really variable. It's one of the joys of the industry and working in PR is upsides and downsides, but it's really variable and it's very rare that two of my weeks are the same. That's quite fun. That must be quite yeah. like it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy it. The um I, I this podcast will come out. It will come out after that launch event, which is I don't know when, I don't know actually when the when when's the embargo release for that car monday uh so the, the guys who are driving the car this week will be able to report they can report that they're driving it and many of yeah. them already have uh on social but the driving impressions as we call it in other words the nuts and yeah. bolts is monday but these are pre-production cars so this is an, uh, a kind of event we call meet the engineers so it's a very tiny number of media i think there's five on this that's the amount of slots we have yeah. and it's to drive prototypes of the car and spend an evening at dinner with the engineers behind building it um, okay. over a glass of wine and a chat. So it's the, it's not the finished car, um, but it's pretty close. So it will give people an idea. And it's a two-way thing, of course, because the engineers love hearing what the journalists think. Mm. It gives them, there's still time for them to make adjustments. And if enough journalists say the same thing about an area that can be improved, they'll go away and look at that. And so it's really helpful for us too. So the main media launch for that car will be early next year. We haven't got a date yet, but I would think it will probably be late January, February. Yeah, the um, I I I got invited. Not I think not to the early one, but to a later one. Unfortunately, I've got something else and I can't can't <laughs> come. But the um, I was I was very much looking forward to that. One of the things I've always sort of wondered is when you get feedback from media, and let's just say they've published it. Mm-hmm. This can come in various forms: positive, negative, and all that. But is it often a surprise? Let's say, let's say they find something they don't like. What a good question. Um, gosh, uh, I don't think it's unexpected that people will have criticisms. Yeah. Um, I think it's very rare that you have a car where you think, 
in my case, GR Yaris is probably the only thing where I've thought, I don't see anything about this that <laughs> someone's going to go, and, and turned out to be right. But, you know, every car is fundamentally a compromise of some sort, yeah. you know, otherwise they'd all cost a million pounds. Yeah. Um, sometimes the criticisms are really fair. Sometimes there's things about the car. Somebody will say the boot's not big enough and internally we'll go, you know what, they're right. You know, that's, that is definitely a, a weak point on this product so we're really grown up about that sometimes criticisms can be we we think a little unfair um i think every manufacturer would say that we're quite proud of our things um (laughs) what's really interesting is some media and by media i include everybody whether it be you know uh, magazines papers youtube online podcasts some media remember that they're writing or filming for the end user the customer and some don't and that manifests itself in some funny ways. So occasionally you'll be launching a, I don't know, a, a B-class city car, yeah, you know, um, uh, which is all about uh, being affordable and efficient and small and you know all of those things. Uh, and somebody will complain that the turn-in at speed isn't what it could be. <laughs> and you think, Classic. okay, I know you were driving a, a, a 911 GT3 last week, but that's not what this is, <laughs> you know, and nobody who takes one for a test drive will go, well, I liked it, but I thought the turn in at speed wasn't what it could be. So, (laughs) you know, Um, so what's really interesting is the very best automotive journalists uh, that we deal with. I'm not going to put people in in names, but the absolute best. And, you you know, you kind of know who they are, top of the industry guys. They are brilliant at that. They're absolutely brilliant at getting in a car and thinking, who is it who will be reading this piece I write? Uh, because they're interested in this car mm. and what do they want to know and what do they care about and what they don't. Um, the manual gearbox argument is the great example of this. <laughs> you know, so all the people who go, well, yeah, but it doesn't, it's not offered with a manual. And we say, but nobody buys manual gearboxes in, yeah. in normal cars. In, you know. in that car, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I think that that's one of the really significant things. So criticism, absolutely fine. If we think it's unfair, we'll challenge it politely. You know, I'll, I'll pick up the phone and just say, look, I read that and I, you know, that's not the way we've we've found it. Can I ask why you thought that? But we're always absolutely honest. So, and that's important. I think if a, a journalist, if I ring a journalist and say, I don't think this is fair, they know I really think that because when yeah. it is fair, I will take it on the chin. Um, and I think you have to be that way. Yeah, I think that's... That's one of those things that there's this sort of, I think, image a lot of people have that no one, specifically YouTubers, get this this brush, and it's probably fair, is they will never say anything negative about a car because, mm. they're, you know, the, the theory is that you may never get another one. Um, and I think your point about... And a, a lot of YouTubers, I think, myself, when I'm asking to borrow cars, I don't... Uh, let's say if I give my opinion on a car, it's generally mm. my opinion of of For me sure. and in my life, and I don't I I don't necessarily try and go in the mindset of the person buying that mm-hmm. car because I'm generally trying to because I don't drive that many cars and I generally try to drive cars I'm really interested in, so I am a potential customer. But people sure. can look at me and go. Yeah, well, that's your opinion, and I would totally go, that is. I think that's a good thing, though, Sam. I mean, it should be your opinion, and, and I think always is with media, but 
example, if I lend you an LFA tomorrow, mm. you're not going to do a segment where you open the boot and go, it's all right, but I don't think you get four big Waitrose <laughs> bags in here, so mark off. You're not going to do it, right? Because yeah. you know that is not what that car's for and that's not why people buy it. If I lent you a Highlander and it had a small boot, which it doesn't, it's huge, yeah. but if it did you would perfectly reasonably say, well, hang on a minute, I kind of expected this to be able to carry more stuff. Look at the size of it. Uh, it's still your opinion, but you are putting yourself to some degree in the, in the customer's position because you're recognising certain cars are designed to do certain things. Uh, you know, GR Yaris you had recently, you're not going to get four six-foot bits of timber and 20 concrete slabs in it. We'll no. sell you a Hilux for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. And there are absolutely cases where these all fit in. And I think something that we see a bit more of now, thanks to the internet and, and social media and Instagram and whatever, we see more owners talking about cars. And mm. there's... I always find it tricky. I would say the first people I go to when I'm researching a new car is I'll, I'll go to the website and read all the specs and whatnot. But then I'll go to YouTube mm-hmm. and probably watch a video from a couple of people... Um, yeah. Nor, for me, it's normally motoring journalists. Um, I, because I want to know the techie, nerdy side of it, and from the people yeah. that have driven a hundred million cars. And then I'll ask a friend, maybe who might be a YouTuber who's also driven a lot of cars, just what their opinion is. There's there's a certain amount of power that comes from someone that's actually bought one, whatever the car oh, is. Yeah. And gotcha. I think. Some manufacturers really quite dismiss that quite publicly. Actually, another manufacturer did that recently. Um, wow. Sort of said that you, you know, what you, you're just an owner, and you're like, well, no, I'm. If, if I'm an owner, I'm actually more Gosh. important than like anyone else. <laughs> Ish, Absolutely, you know, to right. some extent. Goodness um, me, I'm. Uh, I'm not going to criticise anybody else, but that's that does make my eyebrows go up. And we're, <laughs> we're the opposite. Uh, for our social media teams, who are all, by the way, in, we don't use agencies or people off in buildings. Yeah. They're in our building and they work for us full time. Engagement is king for us. I mean, from a very boring business point of view, that's what we set as our priorities on social media is not numbers, it's engagement. Mm. And that engagement can be negative and we really like it. I know this sounds bizarre, but I, I've seen some of the guys on our community management team you know, they'll get somebody on Insta saying, I hate the Toyota Prius, it's a piece of crap and should never have been invented. And they will deliberately engage with that person and say, oh, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Why do you think that? Yeah. And they'll have a conversation. They might not change that person's mind, but the person who said it almost invariably is grateful for them coming back and engaging and having the conversation and seeking their opinion. Uh, and, of course, other people see that happening too. And it's the same with owners. You know, owners are absolutely king if you have chosen to spend your own hard-earned money on one of our products then your voice is without doubt the most important voice yeah it's it's your point about engaging is 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 huge when you see manufacturers just just like batting them away and then um there's so many these things pop into my mind of a certain manufacturer doing something (laughs) but i'm gonna sort of avoid it but you know, a manufacturer might redesign a car. Everyone says they don't like the redesign. And then the manufacturer says, well, you're all wrong. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, well, <laughs> well you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, that, the engagement is really important. I mean, the, uh, social media 
has its pros and cons, as we all know. We're not here to talk about that in the round. But from, for a company like us, uh, earlier we talked about the prism through which media stuff goes mm. to, to reach customers. Social media avoids that prism. We can talk directly to customers, potential customers, ex-customers, or even people who hate us and will never be our customers. We can talk to all those people. We can listen to them. We can tell them our point of view. We can maybe try to change their minds if they're, if they're not positive. Um, or we can thank them if they are. That's been a real sea change for companies, uh, not just automotive companies. And I think some do it really, really well. Um, Pre-COVID, there were a couple of airlines that I used to look at who were um, particularly brilliant. They were smaller airlines, actually, but just brilliant yeah. at really being there and really quickly say, you know, our response times are the quickest in automotive online. So mm. our guys will get back to you. They may not always have an answer, but they'll be there to say, hear what you say, see your question. I need to ask somebody about this, but I'll be back to you. Yeah. And it makes such a big difference. Yeah, I mean, we all do it in our daily lives, don't we? You have a, a question about a product or something. Maybe you go to Twitter because that's quite a good place yeah. for that and uh, ask the company. You get a response 20 minutes later saying, oh, yeah, here's the answer. It feels great. Feels it like does. somebody cares. Yeah, it makes. I, I, that was going to be actually one of my questions of how this change has been sort of felt by you guys of the ability to. You've just removed that barrier, which was you know you go and do market research and then you do all that sort of stuff. Now it's just like you and the world, and you can inter- yeah. interact. What it's really good for the um, uh, the, the sort of quantitative stuff. So. It's great for customer service, great for answering questions, which oil do I need for my Yaris and how do I do this or I can't get hold of my dealer or whatever it may be. And it's really good for car fun stuff, having conversations about, you know, somebody the other day was talking to our community managers about the Toyota Tundra, which is a huge pickup truck that's available in America. Mm. It's not available here because it wouldn't fit down any of the streets. (laughs) Uh, And the they were talking about why we don't import it here. And the community manager was saying, well, I really wish we would. I keep making this point in the office, but that's why they won't put me in charge of product investment. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but where it's not good, well, it's, no, not good is the wrong phrase. Where it doesn't work and shouldn't work is the, the, the sort of qualitative. So it's no good us saying this car that we make is better than this car that these guys over here make. Yeah because no one's going to believe us, right? We might be right, it might be, but no one's going to believe us. And I think what will never be lost is the vital importance of that third-party expert Mm. view, whether it's a YouTuber or a podcast or an automotive journalist or whoever it is. But that person you know is a real expert and has a real understanding who says to you through whichever media you use, this is a good thing and it's better than that one there. Um, That's always going to be vital uh, in... Uh, being a persuasive factor for people to buy things. And that's why, really back to your earlier question, that's why we have to take criticism on the chin. I think there's a perception out there that our industry would love this, love it if we had this group of really compliant media who just did what we said and wrote what we asked them to. Yeah. Uh, now, there may be some people who think like that, but I think they're very short-sighted if they do, because if you have a group of yes men and women, suddenly their influence... They may still have the audience, but their influence ebbs away if, you, you know, if you're never honest about how you feel. So from our point of view, I'd rather take the odd bit of criticism, uh, which is worth it for those days when people say this thing here is just fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're following, like if I have a, a, a favorite journalist, 
that I think, you know what, their opinion really count. Like, we align. I think people sort of find yeah. the person, wherever it is, where they're like, that person likes the stuff that I like. Yeah. And then if they totally. say, that's good, you're like, oh, I think it's probably going to be good. I think, like, but it takes five minutes to light that on fire. <laughs> if someone, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, just goes and waffles about something and is like, this is great. Um, it, it, it can just disappear overnight. Yeah, I think that's right. And we all find people that, that we resonate with, don't we? Uh, it would be wrong of me to name names and I won't, but uh, there's one very senior road tester in particular who uh, absolutely sort of sees cars the way I see cars. Mm. Uh, and that person, particularly old, so old cars is part of my passion, um, right. not just ones made by us, I hasten to add. Um, he's the guy I ring up when I want some advice about something or when, yeah. you know, a friend of mine phones up and uh, says, I'm thinking of buying this. It's not one of ours. That's the guy I'll ring up and go, what do I tell him? Um, I think we've all got one of those. So I've told him he can't retire because I'm going to need him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know whether those people ever, they might retire, but they're not going to stop driving cars. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think also that a number of them, are, when they get to a very senior level, are really passionate about passing on that expertise. And mm. if you look at Autocar, for example, uh, so you take Steve Cropley, who's really the doyen of uh, British motoring journalists, even though he's Australian. Um, but, you know, Steve, I don't know how old Steve is now. I mean, he's possibly even in his early 70s. But utterly brilliant journalist, great driver, but so passionate about bringing through a new and more diverse group of young people into that mm. industry. Uh, and I think Autocar in 10, 15 years' time will, will absolutely feel the benefit of that. Well, it already does because he's been doing it for years, but really good example of somebody who really cares, and we talked about this earlier, about getting new people in with new points of view and new ways of looking at things. Yeah, that's really important. And I think a lot of people look, might look at the sort of the pool of journalists that are out there, and it, it, it is much better than it used to be. The, those people like it that has got much broader now and it it needs to be done and i think a lot of people go uh, a, a prime example of this was previously a new car's been launched a fast something track special and mm -hmm. someone will get invited on the launch that's not a very good driver i've always backed up those people people go like oh i should be there i'm a better driver and like as you've pointed out before it's not about how good a driver you are it's about like how much your audience relates to you and the wider picture but i always thought yeah. that was interesting like actually that person's view is pro probably more important maybe than the person yeah. that's a professional le mans driver because that is the experience that the buyer is probably going to have driving that car. Now, you can get, if we yeah, start going super niche, then the other drivers, but yeah. your average Joe driving a car is really important to know what average Joe, you know, whoever average Joe completely. is. Yeah, thinks. completely. You're right. And this is not helped by the fact that even in normal life away from the industry that you and I are both mm. around, uh, Everybody thinks they're Hanno Mikola. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely everybody. Yeah. I, I have never, particularly men, 
I've never met a, a man in particular who'll go, well, I'm an average driver at best. I'm not yeah. really good. <laughs> I've never met one. Yeah. You know, and I'm in my 40s. Yeah. So uh, it is interesting. We had a, I won't tell you what, but a few years ago we launched something pretty quick at a racetrack in Spain. Uh, and one of the young journalists, there's a, a particular corner there which has a, a bit of an adverse camber kick on the top mm. of it. And you've got to be really careful of it. Obviously all in the briefings. Uh, Anyway, he wasn't really careful of it and had a very big off backwards and totaled the car. He was fine. Uh, and I spent, I don't know, an hour with him in the sort of pit lane going, it doesn't matter. It's just metal and plastic. As long as you're all right, have a cup of tea, calm down. It's fine. Don't worry. Uh, and he finally was all right. Anyway, then wrote a piece saying he liked it, but it could be faster. <laughs> and didn't mention the fact that he crashed it. <laughs> Which I thought... I thought, all right, fair enough. Maybe you think it could be faster. But I think if you're going to say that, it's beholden on you to say, although I did lose control of it and total it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could not control it and I wrote off the car. That, yeah, but it should does, be quicker. Is, is that, do, in, in that situation, does that person get invited back? Or it, the yeah. fact they crashed uh, it? Yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, uh, uh, yes, the, we don't ban people yeah. um except for the only times it's happened uh, it's incredibly rare i mean it takes years but you know anybody who you know if, let's say you were picked up speeding at three figure speeds yeah we would take the view that you're irresponsible and you shouldn't be in our cars and we'd do that through your editor if you had one yeah. um uh, obviously anything to do with drink drugs dangerous drive anything like that clearly that is yeah. deeply unprofessional and, and we would stop. On racetracks, same thing applies. I think as long as people are not, and in fairness to this guy, he wasn't driving like an idiot. It was just, he'd just gone slightly outside his comfort envelope. Got it wrong. Which is really easy to do on a racetrack and particularly easy to do when you're driving with other people. So, you know, it happens to me all the time. I'll, I'll get on a track and some of the people around me are vastly faster than I am. Most, my team would tell you, in fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, you have to know, I can't keep up with that guy. I'm not going to take his breaking point and his, his line yeah. because I don't have his skill set. And I think that probably comes with age, the advantage of being an old fart. And, and this was a young lad, I, th I think, was just trying to keep up with quicker people and yeah. got it wrong. But no, no suggestion of not being invited back. Um, I wasn't massively impressed with the, <laughs> with the end piece in terms of what he said, but Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But, uh... 
I get to tell the story like this, so it's probably been yeah. worth it long term. Yeah, 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 exactly. Your point about uh, driving on track is is funny because I I've done a, a reasonable amount of racing and whatnot, and often you come back in and you'll look at the data, and it'll that someone will tell you, okay, you can do a couple of miles now faster through that corner, or you can break later, or whatever. And the yeah. missing link between that and you driving is often. Yes, technically it might be possible if you do everything yeah. perfectly, but you not, might not know how yeah. to brake correctly, and therefore yeah. you follow that person through that corner, and they are doing stuff completely differently to you, and off you go. <laughs> yeah, totally right, Sam. And you know that thing when you, you know, I have no pretensions to being quick on a racetrack. I'm not. Yeah. I will say I'm quick in the dirt. So you put me in a in a okay. truck or a, or a rally car, I can do that, but. Um, but not on the track. But what's amazing, and I'm, you must have experienced this, is when you go out with a pro, proper pro, and the difference, I mean, it's, it's chalk and cheese. Uh, yeah. You know, even those of us who have spent a lot of time going around tracks, it's like they're, they're on a different planet. They are yeah. so much faster and not putting in any effort at all. No. I, um, I've got a lovely piece of video somewhere years ago. I was lucky enough, Freddie Asbo, the, the drift racer, took me in his uh, ethanol-powered, gt86 which is a thousand brake horsepower nice. on the ice in finland okay and so we're completely sideways doing probably three figures speed and there are blue flames coming out of the double vents <laughs> in the bonnet about three feet long it's absolutely deafening and he's looking over at me he's a right-hand drive car and he's looking over at me like this and he's talking about the car his mate has bought so he's literally going, and I said to him, well, you wouldn't, would you? And li- my face is pressed up against the window, going faster than I could dream of going. And he's not even at 50%. He's not even trying. And, and it's just, you know, they're not like us, as that famous phrase goes. They're, they're not. And it's almost like, because if you go out, the best is when you go out in, you go to a track and it's your car. So you've driven it or you're driving it and then they drive it. And it's like they're driving a different car. Right. And and the more you learn, the more you learn like how that is yes. the case and whatnot. But they're so smooth and everything like they, they can just carry more speed everywhere. And like you said, they're just they're just chilling. Like one hand, yeah. like yeah, whatever, <laughs> blah blah blah. And you it's not even you any go, effort. You go through the same corner like fully kind of like crossed up you're like i'm at the limit (laughs) it's all a terrible drama and you know they're sat in the passenger thing seat thinking oh god yeah so have you done a bit of rallying uh co-driving rallying years ago when i was when i was younger uh but i grew up in um in africa so my sort of passion is uh stupid trucks uh really okay Uh, it's it's not very subtle is it um (laughs) but yeah i'm um uh, I'm a big fan of our Dakar efforts um, and actually very sad that this last couple of years because of COVID, uh, we haven't been able to do a, a trip to the Dakar to see the mm. Gazoo team out there. Um, I think that will be the same come January. Uh, but fingers crossed, 2023, I'm hoping finally to get uh, some media out to that because um, it's a really special kind of event and I think it's a really special kind of racing. I mean, if you remember Alonso, chose to do it for us mm. um uh whilst he was part of our world endurance car program um uh with which of course he won a world championship um but yeah it's it's a mad kind of racing in that 
any kind of racing where you're going fast enough to hurt yourself, but also you could lose by getting lost, has <laughs> got something <laughs> yeah. to be said for it. <laughs> yeah, a, a, um, a friend of mine, or a couple of friends of mine, were putting, they were going to be doing the Dakar this year, and they were putting a team oh, together. Wow. And they were like, hey, Sam, like up to a few of us, like, who wants to drive? Like, do you want to have a go? <laughs> and, um, you know, we need to go and do various stages and whatnot and prep and whatever. And, and I was like, no, thank you. Uh, like, and, then, and one of the guys, he was, he was like, I, I was shocked. I thought you'd be all over it. You love yeah. racing. You love and I was like, yeah, but have you ever watched a Dakar? <laughs> yeah. It looks no, awful. You can really... <laughs> Yeah, you can get yourself into some serious trouble out there with that sort of thing. Um, oddly enough, um, uh, Charlie's book, the guy who with you and McGregor went around the world on bikes. Yes, yes. Um, he trained with Cy Pavey to do a Dakar on motorbikes, which is wow. off the scale brutal, yes. by the way. Uh, I'm just like nothing else. Um, and his his book about that is fascinating because the things you don't realise the speed that the top end cars are coming past you from all sorts of different directions okay, out in the yeah. dunes, you know, there can be a 70 mile an hour speed difference when you're on it. Um, it's just an incredible thing. So yeah, definitely worth, um, definitely worth a read. Yeah. I'll, I'll check that out. And it's, those are the sorts of things that you don't, you don't get to pick up. You don't get that from the coverage or anything like that. And then someone talks no. about it a bit like, uh, although I imagine that's significantly more sketchy than, uh, endurance racing where you've got ser- significant multi-class differences. So maybe like the, a yes. VLN race where you've got a two series or whatever going around and then a GT3 car and just yeah. getting batted out of the way. <laughs> it's frightening, isn't it? I, uh, I was watching some onboard footage uh, from uh, our TSO 50. So the, last, yes. the previous generation Le Mans winning world championship winning endurance car with Mike Conway driving. And I should say, actually, it'd be remiss of me, given it was yesterday, uh, Mike Conway, world champion again, as of, uh, as of Sunday, uh, in our, uh, in our supercar. Uh, but it was onboard footage down the Molsan at night. Um, yeah. uh, so Mike is probably doing, given the weather conditions and the aero on the car, 215, something like that, MPH, in the dark, uh, down the Molsan. Uh, and it comes to the bottom, and one of the, the gentlemen racers, as we call them, in a Ferrari, had got his line wrong into the first S out of the Molsan yeah. uh, and was in the wrong part of the track. And Mike must have been doing twice his speed when he came on him. Uh, and he missed him because, you know, Mike Conway, like all those guys, has got the reactions of a housefly. It's amazing. But um, the speed difference was just terrifying. It was literally like coming around a corner on a British B road to find a brick wall. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow surviving somehow surviving yeah no it is uh it's it's mad it's mad and those cars i think we're because now what are we in hypercars are toyota running a hypercar they are or are they doing Uh, yeah we've just we've just won the initial world championship uh so the eight hours of bahrain we'd actually won it um in the previous bahrain race uh but we didn't know which of our drivers teams would be world champions so uh yeah we are the inaugural hypercar world champions we had a one two in the eight hours of bahrain at the weekend um and the three drivers that include britain's mike conway are world champions yeah awesome well done (laughs) yeah also winning the world rally championship at the same time he says pulling the company yes yes so i what 
Right. GR or Yaris GR. I think I've, I've got that wrong. GR Yaris. A lot way around. GR Yaris. Um, the, that was going to be... It was made to be a WRC car and then wasn't a WRC car, but now it is a WRC car. Almost, Sam. Um, it was... Um, so it was built to homologate what would have been the new rally car. Yeah. So uh, the WRC had said that there would be new cars for 2020, from memory. Um, and obviously, as, as you understand, there are some really strict rules in, in WRC about how far you can go from the road car that your vehicle is based on. Right. Uh, uh, much tighter than people think, actually. So the shape of the car uh, is vital you can't make massive changes to the shape of the car uh, the materials from which your road car body is made your race car body will be made from so if you build the whole thing out of steel you've got a heavy race car okay. um, generally speaking what happens is, these days at least maybe it used to be different in the 80s and 90s is manufacturers will take a car that is uh i don't want to talk about individuals but because of the shape the size of rally cars that's generally going to be a b or a c segment car probably a car that's been designed to be economical, efficient, family yeah. shopping car. No names mentioned, but you can think of a long yeah. list of them. And then they turn that into a mad rally car, but within those rules. The other thing you can do is to build a car purely as a homologation base. So you say, this makes no sense economically at all. We'll build the car to give us the best possible rally car. So if you look at GR Yaris, that mad sloping roof at the back that's really low, that's all about getting a massive wing on the back of the rally car because yeah. you're not allowed to change that angle. Uh, now, that would never get through sign-off normally. If you're selling, you're trying to sell, I don't know, a million of those cars a year around yeah. the world to Mr. and Mrs. Blogs to go to Sainsbury's. In. Well, no, you want a roof that... You know, uh, the same is true of the materials from which it's built. There's all sorts of things. Um, the carbon fibre weave on the roof was specifically designed uh, for that. We've got some great video, actually, of Yeri Matti Ladvela, who used to be one of our WRC drivers, now runs the team, jumping up and down on it in a woodland in Finland, <laughs> going, it will break, it will break. And a classic rally driver attempt to test something. Yeah. Um, so that whole car was built to homologate what would have been the new race car. And then what happened was COVID hit. So we were, we, by the way, we're always going to sell a road version because you have to. Yeah. You have to have 25,000 globally in, okay, to yeah. base your rally car on. And then COVID arrived. And the FIA and WRC very reasonably said, in this environment, teams haven't got the ability to test a new car as much as like. But more importantly, it's money. Given the huge amount mm. of you know, pain that the world was in, it wasn't reasonable to expect people to go out and spend many millions of pounds building a completely new race car. So they said, what we'll do is we'll stick with the ones we've got up until the hybrid era comes in, which is, of course, next year. Um, and what that meant was that GR Yaris was built to homologate a race car that never raced. WRC said, keep the cars you've got and then do the change for the hybrid era, which starts next year, which had always yes. been the plan. Okay. So what that means is that GR Yaris was a homolog it's a genuine homologation special. The fact that the race car it was built to homologate never raced is neither here nor there. Uh, but they don't really, if you think back uh, to Ford RS2000, for example, mm. that was a homologation special. Uh, there are various others, but it doesn't really happen though because it literally makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> and 
G.R. Yaris would not have got through any one of the checks that normally would come before a car goes into production at Toyota because it's bonkers. But luckily for us, the guy who runs the company, Accio, Toyota, who's the big boss, is a massive race fan and takes the view that if we stop building fun cars, we've done something wrong. So (laughs) we will always do that. So the chief engineer, when you talk to him, it was hilarious. He'd spent years building other things. And when he came to build this one, he'd sort of say, uh, Tommy Mackinnon from the rally team, who they were really closely involved with the whole development of the car, for obvious reasons, because it's a homologation car. He wants this and he wants that. And all of the accountants at Toyota would go, but that's insane. And he'd go, have you met Mr. Toyota? (laughs) All right, signed off. (laughs) So this thing is... It's incredible. It, it shouldn't exist, really, in the modern world. Um, it's just a joy that it does. It's, it, it must be really cool being part of a company during like, this sort of period of time as well. Like, I know Toyota have done it significantly yeah. over the past and whatnot, but to have this project come out and be received so well by everyone, obviously, um, it must yeah. be a really cool, cool thing wonderful i mean it's been wonderful it's i i've i've never known anything like it but guys who've been in the industry a lot longer you know it's it's genuinely a a generational car i mean they come along right um uh, you know not fair for me to pick up other things but other people have made things that are just all-time greats right over Mm. the years and there's no doubt this is one i mean i would say that but (laughs) it's true it really is something very very special um and you're right we're lucky the company's led by somebody who, whilst his drive is improve everything we make, do better, we're selling cars in 170 countries. So, uh, you know, we're a huge global business. And the fact that Accio takes the time out to say, let's build this mad thing as well, because yeah. it's fun and people will like it. Uh, we're really lucky that he's running the ship, I think. How many, how many cars do Toyota sell a year or make? Oh, globally? Uh, gosh, mm. what a horrible question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I know roughly. I mean, many millions is the answer. Yeah. I want to say somewhere around the 10 million mark. Um, okay. uh, a lot uh, in 170 countries. Yeah. So when you look at something like Yaris, G.I. Yaris, which there's... Did you, well, actually, how many are there going to be? Because I, I, I know it was an initial production run, but I feel like there's going to yep. be more. It's a good question. Um, I don't know if there are or there aren't. We had to build 25,000 for the homologation rules, and we said we'd do mm. that. Uh, and that we have uh, not quite done, but because you know, there's orders for next year and so on. Yeah. Uh, but in the UK, they're all sold. Um, this year, next year's allocation is sold, so the, the car is, if you will, sold out. Um, and I think it's pretty much the same everywhere. The company hasn't yet decided um, at headquarters whether it's going to make the car again after that 25,000. Okay. Um, uh, and I think there are really interesting arguments both ways, right? You know, one, one argument says, oh, you know, keep it really exclusive. And uh, the other one says, well, if people want it, well, they still can um, uh, have a car like this with this kind of power plant. Uh, let them have it. So we'll see which way the, the big bosses decide. Um, but I hope we'll know sometime during next year uh, and in the UK, we're taking expressions of interest rather than orders. We can't take orders for something yeah. that may not exist, um, which isn't really a waiting list, but at least we will go back to people when we know one way or yeah. the other. No, it's, um, yeah, because it, it, you sort of, I sort of want to know, 
how much of the uh, the production cost of those cars has been sort of allocated to marketing <laughs> versus <laughs> and like presumably they don't really make any money or they might they, they must make a little bit no maybe uh, well, not really. i'm not going to go into specifics for obvious reasons it is not a car that is designed to make money i think yeah. i'd put it that that way and not go any further um really interestingly the marketing of gr yaris has been very small actually um and there's there's probably three reasons for that. One is volume. So if you're trying to sell, I don't know, 150,000 of something, uh, you know, in in Western Europe alone in six months, yeah. you need a lot of marketing because you've got to, you need to make sure a lot of people know about it. So small volume, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is Gazoo Racing, who build the car, the Gazoo Racing Company, uh, who also make Supra, of course, um, and will make uh, the GR86 when that mm-hmm. arrives. Um their marketing comes in the form of winning world championships. Um, yeah. So as we've discussed earlier in the podcast, WEC, WRC, Dakar, these sorts of things. Um, and lots of other race series, by the way, that they're in. Lots of domestic series in Japan, some interesting stuff in America. Kazoo now have a NASCAR entry in the US. Um, okay. yeah. So that is kind of the marketing for Kazoo, is, is world championship winning yeah. elite level motorsport. Um, I think the challenge for us is just linking the Gazoo Racing Company that made the car, which is part of the racing part, with those things, which I think we've done pretty well. Um, uh, but yeah, um, economically speaking, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I think I, I totally agree with the view that it's money well spent and it will bring a lot of people to the brand. I think I think I personally think because yeah. I see previously I've seen you know Toyota racing in WEC or something, and you go okay, they do all this crazy high end <laughs> racing, and then you go but where's the road car? Where's yeah. any road cars that link to this and these sorts of projects? Um, yeah, definitely sort of I think bring that in, and then people go oh I really like that you know the sort of enthusiast which is not the general market. Yeah. I really like that product. And then they start to branch out into other You're right. other products in the range. I'll tell you a, a sort of internal secret that's, that's quite interesting. One of the purposes of the whole Gazoo thing, the racing part of it, mm. sure, it's about winning races and brand association, all the things you quite rightly point out. But there's an interesting thing that happens inside Toyota as well, which people don't see. So the way we work, you know, we're quite famous for our production system and the way we go about things, and that's now used by the NHS in England, amongst others. It's great, and it really works, but it's very careful and very slow and very exact, mm-hmm. and that doesn't work in the world of racing, as you know. You've, you know, you've done plenty of it. You know, you've got to make decisions. How are we going to fix this? We'll do that. Out you go. So what we've done uh, globally is quite a lot of the guys from Kazoo Racing will go and do a year or two-year attachment in normal Toyota, it might okay. be a factory, it might be at HQ, and they bring with them that kind of amazing racing can-do, stop-talking-about-it-and-do-it yeah. attitude. But equally, a lot of guys from the normal Toyota company will go and do a one- or two-year stint within the Kazoo Racing part of the business, yeah. bringing with them that, yeah, that's all very well, but if you stop and think about it for 30 seconds, and what we're finding is, of course, they're, they're both right, not yeah. necessarily at the same time. And the cross-pollination of ways of working is really helping across both pieces. No, that that's, sounds, sounds like a brilliant idea. Yeah. Absolutely. And Sadly, not mine. Otherwise, I could retire. 
<laughs> Not yet. Maybe you'll come up with something else. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> with um, actually, the GR Yaris, it's in terms of cars I've driven, and my only slight fault with it, if, if, I, if I had to say mm-hmm. there's one fault, is it's too good at what it's designed to do. So it's, incre- it's the only car I've got in in a while. I can't really think of another car I've driven that's been like this. You take to a really bumpy B road and you just go down it and it just goes down it. Like yeah. serious pace as much as you want and it just mm. keeps going and you go, I think I could go faster and faster and faster, <laughs> which I can see makes it an incredible rally car. Yeah. And also pretty fun. But I, in my personal driving sort of development changes, I'm... Mm-hmm erring towards things that are a bit more sketchy <laughs> okay and uh my only thing with that is i feel like it could be a little bit more on the edge but i i imagine it's interesting actually you could do like some people have done and i've not driven any of the cars do some suspension just you know set up tweaks and it would be um, make it worse a bit, yeah, make it worse. Make it on paper worse, slower, and Sam might enjoy it a little bit. More. But other than that, I thought it, it was as a car and a way of getting down a road. It was unbelievably impressive, especially for the price. Especially for the price. Yeah, that was that was Akio's instructions. So he was really clear during the development phase of the car to the whole company. He said, and his exact phrase was, "We're not making a Fabergé egg." So what he meant was, sure, we could, I'll be honest with you, we could probably have charged 50 grand for that, Yeah, frankly, and still sold them all. Seriously. It's, it's that good probably. a thing, and the, there aren't many of them. He was really clear it was an enthusiast car, and it had to be within reach of enthusiasts, um, which is why it makes even less economic sense now that I've told you that than, than <laughs> before. Um, yeah. In terms of the sketchiness, really interesting. Uh, I kind of know what you mean. It is, it is brilliant at what it does because it has that rally pedigree. You can make it sketchy, but you just have to get outside your envelope, and that's probably not sensibly possible on the public road. And uh, that is... I've not driven one on track, and I imagine on track it will have all of the hoonability. Yeah, I, just, I just felt like on the road, I was like, I'm not, I'm not pushing it to this You're level. You're not going to get to that it's, level. Yeah, it's, it's a, too capable. I think what you'll see. In, me anyway. Sorry, I think what you'll see eventually is they will enter club rallying. So you'll see them stripped out, roll caged, and into mm. club rallying, which is the obvious place, you know, yeah. to take one. Um, I know Chief Engineer always said he would love to be able to offer a pre-roll cage stripped out version to yeah. take racing, um, uh, and he would still like to do that. Whether we ever will, I don't know. But I think that's its natural environment. I'll tell you a quick funny story. I don't know if you know Jim Cameron from Mission Motorsport. Um, okay, no, I know um, I've come across him, but... Yeah, don't so Jim um, used to be... A, he's an arts instructor. used to be a Nürburgring instructor, as well mm-hmm. as an ex-soldier. He's very, very fast. Don't tell him I said that, though, because he's a mate of mine, <laughs> and I don't want to compliment him. Um, but we were at the Goodwood, uh, the Invitational for Mission Motorsport, the services charity, uh, a couple of months ago. And at the end of the day... Jim jumped in one of the GR Yaris's and there was a guy there who shall remain nameless who was driving a 911 and on the straights at Goodwood the Porsche was just pulling away as you'd expect not, not massively but a bit you know yeah. in the corners Jim was tucked right up behind him flashing his lights <laughs> and you know 
what's it? I would think that Porsche was worth four times what yeah. the little GR was, and <laughs> they are blisteringly quick in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, which is not me. Um, but yeah, they do shift. It's always fun, and I, and the point about keeping it cheap, I think, is amazing because if you go if you read a, an evo magazine or something and you just pick the cars that everyone's like this is the driver's car of the year or whatever they're all really expensive mm. every now and then there's something less expensive yeah um but generally it's all really expensive and then for pretty much universally a lot of people to come out and go no but this car is really good just ignore everything else it's yeah. really good. And it just also so happens to cost like 30-ish grand. Yeah. Right. Uh, right, it was, it, we're really proud of it. Honestly, really proud of it in that sense. You know, you can, if you think of LFA, you know, which is the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. So LFA is go and do what you can do and don't worry about the cost. Um, and I think it's well known that the company, you know, not only didn't make money on LFAs, but lost money on LFAs. I don't think that's mm. a secret because it was a, it was a technology platform for Lexus. It was to show what can be done. But it's an amazing thing, the LFA. But it is this, you know, now three quarters of a million quid kind of Fabergé egg. And at the other end of the scale, we've taken the same approach to something which, you know, costs 31 grand. Which yeah. is probably about the same as a kind of set of LFA wheels, I should think. I haven't checked. <laughs> but. Yeah, I think that, that needs, to be, needs to be applauded. Are we... I can't remember whether it was still going to happen. Are we going to see a road car version of the hypercar? Uh, Unknown. That's a good question. Um, we've always said that that's the intention. Um, uh, I think the reality will be, given everything that's happened in this last two or three years, it's clearly not a priority. Um, yeah. uh, I think given production problems, COVID in Southeast Asia and all sorts of things... I think the company's focus is on keeping its core business where it needs to be. But there's no doubt if you look at the product range and Accio's worldview that it remains in the wheelhouse. Um, mm. I don't think from a sporting point of view, when you, you look across the Toyota piece and if you add in Lexus, you know, GR Yaris is there, new GR86, you know, which is a rear-wheel drive manual coupe. Um, not many people making those. Then Supra you know pure sports two-seater not many yeah. people making those and so you go up and then the big v8 stuff on the lexus side so we have a passion for performance cars and the fact that we do so well with hybrid allows us to produce them because of our cafe um co2 fleet emissions known as cafe levels are very low compared to most big manufacturers yeah um so i hope it will come but i think right now it's one of those things that can't be a priority for obvious reasons yeah your your point about the um, the fleet emissions. Um, I, I was talking to someone from Toyota recently. Um, we were talking about the, the fleet emissions and why Toyota hasn't had tons of electric cars so far. And essentially, well, at, at that point, you didn't need to or don't need to anywhere near the same level as other manufacturers yeah. because of so many hybrids. And moving forward, presumably we're going to see some more battery electric vehicles yeah yeah um, for sure. and um, then like you also sorry, have the, the the mirai is it the mirai mirai yeah which uh, is, which is hydrogen, hydrogen ev hydrogen ev yeah um, yeah so 
the way it works is it's uh, it's an EV, same as any other BV, but the power yeah. for the battery is created through a hydrogen fuel cell rather than by plugging in the electricity to come into the car from okay. outside. So the electricity is made within the car. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's like a little generator. Yeah, if, uh, in principle, yes, a sort of hydrogen generator, if you will. Do they... Do, do you sell a lot of those, like in the UK? Uh, well, not a lot. Um, uh, I think, understandably, it's a, it's a young technology. Mm. Um, and right now, the infrastructure to support hydrogen is not there in a sort of daily use fashion. Yeah. But yeah, a fair few. You'll see the Met Police run quite a lot of them. Uh, quite a lot of local authorities run them, um, and various others. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a small volume car right now um, and will be for a while until... Uh, that infrastructure catches up. I guess the key point to make to you, Sam, is is Toyota's worldview is technology neutral. So Toyota has never said this technology over here is the way forward to lowering emissions because we don't believe that can work. We think the way you lower emissions is by offering customers a a zero emissions or low emissions car that works for them, not just Mm. one that works for you. Um, And if you... If you look at the world the way Toyota does, which is globally, you know, huge presence in Africa, Asia, and so on, you kind of have to do that. We don't just sell cars in relatively affluent Western Europe. Um, So, yeah, BVs, absolutely. The uh, BZ4X, the first uh, bespoke Toyota BV, uh, will be here next year. Uh, We pulled the covers off that about three weeks ago, globally. Uh, That's a completely new platform. Uh, already Lexus has one with UX300e and both brands will have more, there's no doubt. More plug-ins, more BVs, hybrids still because they're a really important part of lowering emissions and getting people into an affordable electrified car out of their ICE yeah. car. Uh, and hydrogen as well. So all four of those technologies. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting because I, I saw one of those Mirais just drive past me the other day and I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> like, that's a hydrogen vehicle, that's different. Um, and we definitely seem at the moment it's, you know, it's, it's very much being talked about you know everyone needs to push to convert to ev yeah. and as much as i i have a small ev that i use around town i actually think it's brilliant um i know it's not necessarily the solution for everything they're very heavy like it yeah there are other options that might be better if developed more and whatnot and i yeah. think at the moment, we've seen a lot of government push towards EVs, which is rightly or wrongly. I think I think we need change, but we just need like like you know you need your Toyotas and your engineers to to say okay, we need to get to this is the end result. Mm. How do we get there? Work like you guys go and play, <laughs> and then the market try and work it out. Yeah, because it's think- not it's not the catch all solution, definitely. BVs are obviously a massive part of the future, no doubt about it, and they're great. And like you, you know, I really enjoy using them. But you have to, you have to make sure you're you're meeting people's needs. So if you're a Cumbrian hill farmer, yeah, it's no good saying to that guy, get out of your Land Rover or your Hilux or whatever it is you choose to use, uh, and use this little BV. You can't, right? Now, eventually, that will change. But it may be that uh, hydrogen EVs end up being the solution not only for heavy goods vehicles but for those big heavy working vehicles off-road vehicles and so on again Mm. when you look at africa where we're the the market leader in africa uh it may well be that hydrogen in places like that where you can't have a 
place to plug your car in in Namibia every six yeah. miles, maybe hydrogen stations are going to be the answer. So from Toyota's point of view, we invest in all of these technologies, uh, BV included, and have done. But you're right. Careful what I say because I can't talk about other manufacturers. We haven't had the, fi- the fiscal need to sell a lot of BVs at a negligible profit or a loss. Yeah because we haven't been facing the, the fines for fleet CO2 that, that some others have. So when people say Toyota's behind the curve, it's, it's not that we're behind. And I'd remind you, we've been selling electrified vehicles since 1997. People used to laugh at us for that, and they're certainly not laughing anymore. Yeah. Um, but we're not behind the curve. We just haven't needed to do it in the same way that some other manufacturers have with huge numbers of EVs now. But we are coming with EVs. Uh, Toyota next year, Lexus already here, and with 25 years of battery experience behind us, I think you'll find they'll be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The um, who was I talking to? Someone about Land Cruisers. Is like mm. what? What is the most popular Toyota globally? Yeah, globally. Uh, or UK? I don't. Uh, gosh, that's difficult. In the UK, uh, it's Yaris. Mm-hmm. Um, globally. I want to say the answer to that is Camry. Okay. I want to say because of uh, Camrys in America selling huge numbers, but it looks so different where you go. So the biggest selling vehicle in South Africa is the Toyota Hilux, not the biggest selling pickup, the biggest selling vehicle. Yeah. Um, uh, we sell huge numbers of those and Land Cruisers across Africa and, uh, and Australasia. Don't sell that many Land Cruisers in the UK, but you can't move for them in other parts of the world. So it looks, mm. it's really interesting. When you look at a map of the world from our sales, really different things in different places. Um, yeah. But I reckon Camry is probably still the number one globally. Somebody will watch this and immediately put in the comments, this bloke doesn't know what he's talking about. It's been something <laughs> else for months. So my apologies <laughs> if I've got that wrong. I think, it's, I think it's all good. Right. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. I didn't tell you about this, but it's, no. the whole point is I don't tell you about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, it was driving through the Namibian desert. Um, I was in a Hilux, but we were actually launching a new Land Cruiser at the time. Mm. Uh, and we weren't on any kind of roads at all. It was literally compass point to compass point for about 300 miles day and night, wow. um, ending up uh, by the sea in a tented enclosure that we'd built. Uh, and we went fishing off the beach with a couple of beers. So, yeah, that takes some beating. That sounds wicked. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, a real privilege. Yeah. Um, okay. If you can only drive one car for the rest of your life, okay, there's a caveat. You're one car, rest of your life, and then you've got five hundred pounds for something else on the side. <laughs> oh, oh, this is a terrible question to ask a PR because it might not be one of ours, and then I'll be in trouble. Um, <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> can the one car cost anything? Money, no object. Anything, anything. Yeah. Mm, I think I would have one of the Aston Martin DB4 shooting brakes, of which they Ooh, make four. Nice. nice. Uh, so my apologies to my bosses at Toyota and Lexus. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, those have always had a, a place in my heart. And my £500? 
Can I get a Panda 4x4 for 500 quid? I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to, I don't care if it's full of rust, I'll weld it. Yeah. One of those. Yeah, that'd be a good, that'd be a good duo. Be sorted. Uh, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? Uh, in terms of what I think is going to be worth more down the line? Yes, yes. Um, that is a vicious question. Um, it might be GR Yaris. If we decide not to make any more, if you decide not <laughs> um, to make it, yeah, yeah, could well be GR Yaris. Uh, other than that, God, that's really different. Now I think I'd probably say our, our little Mad Yaris. Yeah, fair. I mean, it's Will not undervalued in that sense. Everybody loves it, but it's um, if we don't make any more, that'll be it. Yeah. There'll only be twenty five thousand. And and we and we might we might get a little GR Yaris Varus plus. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Who can say? I mean, I, I really hope we continue to make it. And I guess if we continue to make it, we'll do what we do with all cars, which is update it as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. I would dearly love us still to be making it in, you know, 10 years' time. But they won't put me in charge of these things, Sam. I keep asking. <laughs> keep pushing. Keep pushing. Yeah, right. yeah. Most interesting car to you at the moment. What are you Googling? What are you looking up? Researching? Uh, can- interested in? Uh, I'm interested in it because I bought it. Does that count? Yes. Uh, it is uh, a 1978 Reliant Scimitar in a magnificent Ooh. shade of brown with an even more magnificent shade of brown on the interior, uh, which I bought last uh, March, February, March. Um, no, this, this February, March 21, uh, and have been restoring. And is now on the road again, having been in a barn for 21 years without moving a wheel. Uh, three litre V6 front mid engine rear wheel drive manual British shooting brake that is don't get many of those so I I love the thing it is so 70s it is ridiculous (laughs) Uh, so I'm deeply in love with that and because it's finally on the road uh, I keep taking it out for pointless drives I don't need to and which has meant I've stopped looking at car and classic and things and yeah. new car websites for a while because I've, I've got my one but the bug will come back that's cool what what drew you to the the scimitar i'd always really liked the shape of them and i'd always thought they were really undervalued back to your, your previous question mm. um and i had a I had an old porsche and a saab 900 both of which i'd sold to friends in both cases yeah which meant I didn't have an old car. I just had a couple of old motorbikes. Um, and I can't live without something to work on. I can't, you know, some excuse to escape to the yeah. garage. So I wanted something that was not expensive because money from those two other vehicles went into other boring domestic things. Yeah. So I wanted something not too expensive that had some character and raised a smile. Um, didn't take itself too seriously, but was fun to drive. And, you know, this ticked all the boxes. And annoyingly, I found one really quickly. I was, you know, so that ruined my chances of getting away with it. Has it been a labour of love or, <laughs> or a, a labour of pain? Uh, oh, it started as a labour of love, like all restorations, and then became a labour of pain, like all restorations. <laughs> um, uh, inevitably, there's always something you weren't expecting. And in my case, when I'd done everything else, a huge amount of chassis and you name it, we'd done it. I mean, tons of stuff. And I had no heating. 
mm. and it what turned out to be the heater matrix. And the only way to change a heater matrix, which by the way costs sixty quid, that's it, is to take the entire dash out. Oh, every okay. single piece. Uh, so uh, for a while, I hated it. Uh, yeah. And Paul Cowland, you know from the TV, um, yeah. Paul is a really good friend of mine. And I rang Paul and said, I've fallen out of love with this car. And he said, get it fixed ASAP, because otherwise it will just sit there and you'll hate it. And it was the right piece of advice. So it cost a bit more money than I was hoping. And I couldn't do it myself because uh, yeah. electrics and I don't get on. Um, uh, but now I love it again, you know. Um, That's good. But it will it will return to being painful soon because it's a 1970s <laughs> British car. That's what they do, and and yeah. you know you get you get to spend time working on it and whatnot. Yes, that's right, and an awful lot of time, as it turns out. My, my wife has views about the old cars and bikes, which I yeah. don't think I need to share with you, but you can imagine. <laughs> right, final question: mm-hmm. five car garage, unlimited oh, value. Wow. Okay. Gosh. First thing that's going in there, uh, uh, and I could have answered this to any of your other questions, actually, would be a Land Cruiser Troopy, if you know what that is. I don't know what that is. This is a 70-series Land Cruiser that was built for the Australian Army and then made publicly available. We still make them, uh, 70-series Land Cruisers. Um, So uh, it's two-door with a rear hatch, and uh, it's just the coolest thing. It's like a kind of massively pumped-up Defender. So that's going in there. Uh, GR Yaris is going in there uh, because I'm not allowed one. We're not staff aren't yeah. allowed to buy them. They're not on our company car scheme because you're not customer, allowed to buy them. No, customer first. That's oh. the Toyota way, customer first. So uh, I'm not even allowed. I know, vicious, isn't it? I'm not even allowed on the waiting list. So I'd have my GR Yaris. Uh, I'd have uh, a late '70s Aston Martin V8 Vantage, so the slightly bull-nosed car, if you know what I mean, that they mm. made into the '80s. Um, I'd have a Bentley Turbo R because I've wanted Ooh. one since I was 14 uh, yeah. and obviously makes no sense on any level at all. You're probably no. noticing these are, with the exception of the GR Yaris, these aren't supercars and they're not new cars, if you know what I mean. No. Um, which probably reflects the way I, I kind of approach the world. And then, very difficult, as a daily, I think a Lexus LC convertible, the V8. Mm. Would be my would be my daily nice. runaround. It's the first time that car's ever been described as a runaround. <laughs> do you um, do you get to cruise around in various press cars most of the time? Yeah, or? Uh, yeah. I'm, it's a real privilege of the job, actually, Sam. Because uh, we talked earlier about what happens if we get criticism. I've yeah. got to be absolutely au fait with everything we make. So if I don't know, Matty Pryor from Autocar phones me up and says, "I thought yeah. this and I didn't like it." I need to at least be able to say, well, that's not how I found it. And now that Matt's judgment is far better than mine. But that means sometimes I'm running around in an Igo and sometimes I'm running around in a, an LC convertible. Um, so I'm really lucky in that sense. Yeah, I get to keep across everything we, we produce. And because I look after both brands and we're such a big company, yeah. that generally means there's a, a different thing on the drive most weeks, which is one of the absolute joys of the job. Really love it. Yeah, that's quite fun. And if you're like, I need something massive, there's something massive. If you want something small, yeah, something small. I, I think yeah, that's right. I mean, the bit you don't see uh, is I I pay a big lump of money to the taxman every year because that's a benefit in kind. <laughs> so nothing comes yeah. for free, right? Ah, uh, yes, yes. 
but no, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm really lucky. If I if I need to move a load of stuff, I can bring a truck home and and do that. And um, yeah, massive upside of the job. Well, it sounds fun. Sounds 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 like, it sounds like sounds fun, and it sounds like you are having fun. Which is, yeah, I, think I really enjoy it. Uh, should have done it years ago, as we discussed earlier. Um, mm. uh, I think it's what you know. Whoever you work for, to be honest, if you do this job, it's and you love cars. It's got to be one of the best jobs you can have. So I am yeah. daily grateful when I get out of bed <laughs> at five forty-five in the morning that I do this. Mm. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I've, I've very much enjoyed it. Me too, Sam. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.